0: Hi, uh, Professor Ray. Thank you for being here today to talk about your book, um, The Ethnic Restorator.
1: Thank you, Yasmin, for having me.
0: So you are the chair of the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU, and uh, you were a faculty member and Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at the Culinary Institute of America. Um, If I'm reading your bio correctly, you're also the author of The Migrant's Table and The Ethnic Restorator, and you co-edited current cultures, globalization, food in South Asia. You're a member of the editorial collective of Gastronomica and your most recent work on street vending in global cities with attention to question of law, livelihood and liveliness of cities. So uh, could you please tell us more, building on that biography, about where you're from and um, what are you currently doing? What project are you currently working on?
1: Perfect. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Yasmin, and uh, don't hesitate to cut me off if I go on and on. And so the first thing is, uh, I'm Krishnendu Ray. As my kind of name reveals, if you're a South Asian, uh, I am from a uh, uh, eastern part of India, uh, and uh, my mother is Odia. It's one of the linguistic nation- uh, nationalities in India, uh, with about forty fifty million between forty to fifty million people my my father is uh, Bengali uh, from the West Bengal side of a border uh, that has about two hundred million people who are Bengali speakers in uh, in uh, Bengal, West Bengal, and what used to be East Pakistan and is today Bangladesh. And I, in fact, uh, spent. It's, I'm a cl- come, out, come out of a classic lower middle class family, which has climbed through education, uh, which was kind of Nehruvian India um, and socialist India, but also got advantage in terms of slow upward mobility from city to city. About every two years, we used to move from eastern India to central India and up to northern India. Delhi, Delhi is where I went to uh, high school and college and hindu college and uh, then i came to the us to work on my dissertation in sociology uh, partly because i was interested in questions of development and underdevelopment why do some parts of the world uh, why are some parts of the world underdeveloped and why do some parts of the world develop uh, developed and so
0: so what's, what year was that
1: that was uh, 1989 and uh, And the question was, this basically a question of global inequality. Um, And uh, when I was in the university at SUNY Binghamton in upstate New York, because it has the largest concentration of sociologists working on questions of global inequality, specifically called the World Systems Group, which had people like Immanuel Wallerstein, Giovanni Arrighi, Andre Gunder Frank, uh, uh, Mark Seldon, etc., I was, in fact, assaulted by nostalgia, Uh, nostalgia for food. And that was the pathway. And in fact, what struck me most dramatically was that uh, I had done a lot of progressive politics, labor organizing Uh in Delhi, in India, when I was a school kid, when I was a college student, but I had never thought about cooking. I had been fed, I had been cared for. And it's not very exceptional, I think, as a South Asian male uh, to, in fact, not do any care work, but be, in fact, uh, cared for in terms of food, in terms of uh, uh, taking care of uh, myself. So I was kind of, in fact, the, the most startling shock for me was how I had not thought about cooking uh, uh, and caregiving at all. Mm-hmm. So that became the opening to mm-hmm. which I started uh, thinking about why is it that I didn't think about cooking and cleaning? and what it means and what does it reveal about myself and in the process what does it reveal about my migration uh to the global north and uh where in fact i began to realize that my own bodily experience and a brown body's experience became could become a tool an epistemological tool in fact an opening to understand uh taste and mobility and uh and inequality uh, in more proximate ways uh, than I had. I was initially imagining global development and underdevelopment.
0: So, but this is basically the foundation for both uh, current cultures and the ethnic restauratory, is that correct?
1: And I think the first one is kind of, that was what drove my first book, which was on the migrants' table. So in a sense, I was connecting uh, the basic sociological imagination, connecting my personal troubles to some larger social question. And the larger social question was, what do migrants think about their culinary practices and what significance it has for them? And how does that compare to migrants now, to say some migrants 50 years ago, migrants 100 years ago, which was mostly, of course, textual archival research? And the contemporary migrants was uh, more ethnographic uh, and sociological interviews. So that's the migrants table.
0: So during when I was reading the ethnic restaurateur, what really struck me was your emphasis of putting the restaurator at the center of the conversation. Um, could you please expand on that? Because you briefly mentioned how anthropological studies or sociological studies are all about food and the centrality of food in heritage formation and identity formation. Um, But no one actually sits down and talks to the provider of those foods.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, that I saw was, I mean, uh, one of the strengths of the sociological anthropological work was a lot of what has come to be called uh, studies of consumption and the consumer. And in fact, this is some bit of compensation uh, in working uh, with what had usually been a productivist paradigm. So there's a lot of work on political economy of hunger, there's a lot of work on production of food in terms of agricultural production from the time of the physiocrats. Uh, In in, in sociology and anthropology, you begin to see a turn towards consumption uh, and studies of consumers and that and history also in social history, you see the same. And that emerges as a major kind of a paradigm and a major innovation. Uh, but, what I was seeing was around me sociologists uh, whose work I was most familiar with uh, were working on domain of consumption and consumers, but in fact, not talking at all to these producers of uh, uh, these material objects uh, that was uh, that people had these kind of very intense affective relationships so in some ways, this was a way to uh, bring greater focus on the materiality of food and especially subjects who were providing the material conditions for urban cultures. Today, you go to any city in the world and any American city specifically, but any global city in the world, uh, you will see immigrant restaurateurs there. Um, and if you go to in places like China and India, you will see rural to urban migrants. If you go to the global north, if you go to Europe, if you go to the United States, if you go to Canada, you will mostly see transnational migrants operating in that domain. So I thought there was a kind of a big gap in, um, in looking at this question of urban culture uh, and uh, uh, immigrant subjects. Uh, And it would be like, in a sense for me was like, if you were to write a, say, uh, uh, ethnographic work, uh, say about American music, and not talk to African Americans who have a very strong presence in the whole world of music production, it'll be like, that was a lot of the work that was going on in sociology was as if the immigrant restauranter was totally irrelevant to the discussion about urban uh, material culture urban food culture. So that was one of the instigation behind, uh, in a sense, bringing the immigrant back into the sociology of taste.
0: The question was about the lumping in together of different type of migrant restaurateurs from South Asia without any distinction, Bengali, Pakistani, Indian, and because of the hegemony of India and South Asia, it's all Indian restaurants. And that's by a process of borrowing and migration as you say in your book it kind of became a staple Uh, there is just one form of indian restaurants that are physically available in urban cities across the world so i was wondering how did that come across when you did your interviews with each and every restaurateur did they feel the same or did they feel individuality
1: good question um So there was uh, almost each of my restaurateurs, especially Pakistani and Bangladeshi restaurateurs, were struggling uh, to articulate uh, kind of their vision of their business and yet meet the demand uh, side question, which is who are you? So, say, uh, Mohammed Rasool, uh, one of the restaurateurs, he said, Well, I could have called it Pakistani. But most Americans will not understand what Pakistani means. And I have to, the first thing I have to explain to them that, no, it is not. I'm talking about Pakistan and I'm not talking about Afghanistan. So in a sense, there was a very clear sense of the relationship between power and knowledge, geographic knowledge in the world. So my theory is that the more powerful in the world, the less you know about uh, world geography uh and in <laughs> fact I got my part of my education I got in India. I had to learn about every country everywhere in the world. I had to learn about European history I had to learn about American history and I had to learn about Russian history and Chinese history. Most Americans in fact don't learn uh anything beyond North American, specifically United States history, and then European history, uh, which, of course, is gets kind of the sim- symptom of that is inability to, in fact, make fine distinctions uh, about far-off places. Uh, and uh, that is precisely the kind of the cage that the Bangladeshi and Pakistani um, uh, restaurateurs found themselves in, in a world in which India demographically dominates. And now I would say also in terms of capital and cultural capital. So they were struggling how to run a business uh, because you cannot be too much of a proselytizer when you're running a business. Uh, You have to run within the frame of uh, kind of, and I would say this dual hierarchy. One is what I call in the book a hierarchy of taste that things like for Indian food or Pakistani food or Bangladeshi food, you cannot charge uh, prices like you can charge for French or Italian food. And then the second hierarchy is this South Asian hierarchy about uh, what is Indian and what gets classified in, as Indian and not Pakistani and not Bangladeshi. You will see some examples in some parts of, uh, uh, in, in New York City and other cities. Uh, for instance, the earliest restaurant tours where all would, would be in some ways Bengali, not even Bangladeshi because Bangladesh was not a country at that point of time. This was British India. They, in fact, that is the source of many of the so-called Indian restaurants, uh, almost in any global city. They were often coming from lascars who worked on the British Merchant Navy, uh, mm-hmm. and they often would get off in these various cities, and they were the, often the first people to uh, run uh, name and run Indian restaurants. In that sense, I would say historically, they gave it the correct name because it was British India. Uh, But subsequently, Mm -hmm. of course, history changed, different nations emerged, but Western conceptions of South Asian geography were so limited that they had to play by the rules of this double hierarchy. One is Indian and not say Pakistani or Bangladeshi. Forget about further regionalization, right? So food from Northern Pakistan Mm -hmm. is very different from food Mm -hmm. from Southern Pakistan, uh, from the Punjab region, uh, region or if you go kind of south, you know, to Karachi or any of those cities, they're quite different, can be quite different foods. So uh, those distinctions were, in fact, very difficult to make, especially if your target audience are outsiders, are Westerners themselves, so people who live in these global cities rather than insiders uh, within the community. So if there's a Pakistani who's running a, a restaurant with South Asian food, he or she can call it Pakistani and make even finer distinctions if their audience is largely Pakistani. But if their audience is largely non-South Asian, then those distinctions, in fact, don't work.
0: Um, About those distinctions, my experience in the UK, for example, has been very clear in the names. So no one would say whether it's Indian or Pakistani. There won't be the need for that subtitle. But the name, if it's if it's uh, Rosoy versus Lahore Foods, just those affiliation geographically will tell the audience whether it's a Pakistani order, uh, owner or owner an Indian owner, and that's very um, that works for the UK, but not the rest of the world.
1: Absolutely, and I think in this particular case, each of these cities are in a slightly different place. In fact, uh, the restaurant South Asian restaurant culture in uh, London specifically. Is I think uh, a much more sophisticated, both in terms of the price range, uh, uh, a regionalization of it, and the example you give of naming. For instance, uh, it is in a sense that that structure works. For instance, I would say Italian restaurants in New York City. You know, you can you don't even have to call it Northern Italian or Southern Italian or uh, or Sicilian, but in some ways the name would gesture towards it. Uh, and that's true with London, uh, as you say, and uh, not true about many other uh, cities. Not true, not true yet about New York. But I think that might be the future.
0: So there's there's a trend that I've no, I'm noticing, and I'm building this this argument, getting it out from your book. You talked about the Curry House Canon, and that how universally there is there's this implemented idea of what the curry house should look like and should serve. And um, clearly this stems from, from the British, uh, British experience. And could you please explain um, how this canon came to be? Because you do that very well in the book. In a few words, tell us more about it.
1: So, yeah, materially, it is the example of uh, uh, South Asian immigrants, specifically Bangladeshis, uh, running uh, uh, cheap uh, buffets and curry houses where there is a price range. For instance, in New York City, for instance, people are not willing to pay over maybe $15 for typical Indian food. They think it is too expensive. And it also tends to be very, if you look at, do a menu analysis of all the 400 restaurants, Indian restaurants, approximately 400 Indian restaurants in New York City, you will get this strong, kind of a a deli-centered cuisine, inflected, with Bangladeshi uh, uh, kind of inflection. So it's, you will have chicken tikka masala, for instance, which is very kind of a British innovation in Great Britain by Bangladeshi immigrants who wanted to give the British public uh, something South Asian, but also has had to kind of soften its uh, spiciness and make it more creamy and added tomato sauce to it. And they would typically have some kebabs and have tandoori chicken with that very bright red color. Uh, chicken tikka masala, uh, samosas, there'll be certain kinds of rices and maybe a raita. But all of that also, for instance, from for my palate, has kind of a sweeter, stronger, sweeter notes than I would find in Delhi. And that is partly the Bangladeshi hand you can see in it, which is the cuisine, in fact, has a lot more onion and garlic. Uh, but also sweet Uh, and that worked well with largely western audiences and especially american audiences who are used to a lot more sweeter food so it's spicy and sweet in some ways
0: yeah but that's quintessentially about the menu how do you explain that all these restaurants decided to look the same also Mm,
1: yes so uh, that was kind of a, uh, a question that was very difficult to get an answer, uh, uh, partly because it was almost like in the domain of practice and habit, rather than in the domain of consciousness. So I had to draw it out, say, oh, why did you name it uh, such- and-such? Uh, why did you uh, uh, design it in this particular way? Why did you have these, uh, say, Christmas lights in, say, on Sixth uh, Street in New York? There's a cluster of say Indian restaurants run by Bangladeshis. All of them have these sparkling Christmas lights. It has become kind of a genre of a subgenre okay. of, of Bangladeshi restaurants here, and they were doing it by party, uh, uh, by borrowing basically. So in a sense, what happens is these so-called ethnic restaurants become a form of um, consulting. So you are an immigrant, you're coming into this world that you don't know what the tastes of these people are. Uh, uh, you mimic the first set of your country cousins who have come here and who, have, who are making a living uh, selling this food. So you, uh, you, do, you pick up the menu. Uh, your menu looks a lot like I do in my book. I do a menu analysis where people also pick up the same spelling mistakes uh, in, mm-hmm. in 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 uh, describing it, because partly in a sense, some of this, of course, is like you, in your language, you're transliterating, so you make it sound something similar, design something similar, because you are relatively marginal figure with less capital, you less cultural capital, and you're risk averse, so you want to avoid uh, uh, of obviously failing and the failure one of the way to do it is to do what has been done successfully so it becomes like almost like this mm, informal banking system informal cultural consultancy to say if you're opening a restaurant in london so what do the british like if you're opening a restaurant in new york what do americans like and then you basically mimic it and because you neither have the capital resources nor the cultural capital you begin you play it in a very conservative, narrow range of doing exactly what has been done. so what he was I would say uh, coincidental. the first round of Bangladeshi restaurants becomes in fact the norm, the trope, the assumption about how what an uh, bangladeshi run Indian restaurant is going to look like. There are some exceptions mm-hmm. uh, at the other end of it, in fact, in New York City. Lord of the upper end upscale Indian restaurants in fact are uh, have Indian investors and they often take uh takes a million dollars a few million dollars to run a very upscale restaurant and that's about two to three percent of the re- Indian restaurants in New York City and by the way that's that's a global pattern um mm-hmm. with the exception of London in London uh I would say almost 12 to 14% of Indian restaurants are upscale in the London market. That is a lot like, I was just talking to someone yesterday, that's a lot like the way American, at least in New York, uh, the way uh, Italian restaurants are. Uh, So that, that range, Indian is to London, what Italian is to Americans, or New York City, in fact. We took it all.
0: Uh, that's, uh, that's fascinating. But what I'm noticing is the emergence in, in the UK context and maybe in um, the America's context, but with the Southeast Asian second and third generation kids who are, who went to universities, who went through critical theory classes and post, and are into that process of post-coloniality and decoloniality. And there's a few of them who have written about how they're trying to change the design aesthetic to go back to a more authentic menu. They're trying to seek authenticity. Sometimes of places where they have not been, and I know it's been one of my, one of the pitfalls I fell into. That notion of what authenticity means, and you've used the word nostalgia for a few times. For example, I have this nostalgia of a place I've never been. But it's an imagined territory. So my my question was because one of the 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 restaurateurs you interviewed was a lady who wanted to do who wanted to attract a more upscale clientele, as you were referring to cultural capital, and would have more purchase power. However, her endeavour failed a few years short, whereas other more mainstream restaurants continued. Um, Do you have any hints of or any idea of why would that be?
1: Yes, good good question, a couple of things, Uh, one of course, uh, this question of authenticity is fraught and a very interesting question and we have seen it before, we have seen it in music, in folk music, there's a lot of folklore uh, theoretical work, Regina Bendix for instance on the question of authenticity and the folk. Uh, and uh, and we are of course in in this case revisiting it especially in terms of the material culture the symbolic culture of um the popular classes and the poor right uh, and and food of course is quintessentially that uh, because everyone eats and most people historically have been poor in the global South. So in fact, a lot of the food of the global South is in fact poor people's food. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but of course the relationship of what happens when it is transported and transplanted into a city of the global North with a different class hierarchy and class structure. And one of the ways it expresses itself, as you said, especially uh, like say the second generation, uh college educated uh, uh, uh immigrant population who want to engage with this question of culture uh, material objects uh, and its relationship to uh, to power and in the U.S., mm-hmm. a lot of it has been taken lately on the question of cultural appropriation and also cultural appropriateness. Uh, and uh, so there's been a couple of hullabaloo, for instance, recently about say two non-Chinese white American restaurant yes. who are uh, who have a restaurant and they advertise it as saying they want they want they're going to uh, use clean Chinese food.
0: Okay. Absolutely, you know, assumes, lucky cats, yeah. Yeah,
1: Assumes that the old Chinese food was unclean, which of course is an old uh, uh, kind of a presumption. Uh, if you read the New yeah. York Times, if you read any of the Western newspapers about Chinese restaurant, there's this endless discussion about the disgusting things that the Chinese eat. So this was seen as a kind of a reappropriating, a kind of a racialized, colonized, um, uh, 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 signal to saying this is white people making Chinese food, so it's obviously better. So that's kind of one way in which this conversation has developed. And the question of authenticity in some ways is also plays out uh, where you have basically, I think which is interesting, equally interesting, subnational specialization. So for instance, I often don't talk about Indian food for me, to talk about Indian food is a way like talking about European food because India is mm-hmm. a continental in scale. There are, in fact, more languages in India, uh, in South Asia, than there are in Europe. And each, uh, the, I, I started this interview by saying, I'm Oriya, uh, my mother is Oriya, which is about 40 to 50 million people. My father is Bengali, which is around 200 million people. Uh, that's a different mm-hmm. linguistic group. These are, to talk about, Indian food, in a sense, is like talking about in a, you're collapsing say Polish food to Sicilian food you know, and so one of the ways of i think successfully approaching a uh, uh, regional locational uh, 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 authenticity without raising I would say the A word is in fact subnational regionalization because of course there's a relationship between landscape and food because of course food is primarily uh, organic things that have been alive and that depends on sunshine on water on soil so of course there's a relationship between uh, territory uh, and, and produce and taste which in Europe Uh, gets uh, within the frame of terroir, uh, for instance. So do the same, pay enough attention to the food of these regions and regionalize it in a useful manner. And I think in that case, these big national categories like Indian is totally useless. And uh, in fact, uh, we need to sub-regionalize it. I think that's more successful To talk about authenticity in terms of almost like think about it as a foodscape uh, and its relationship uh, uh, to land uh, and how that is getting um, uh, allows us to approach the specificity of a cuisine. The same way we pay attention, I would say, to European foods from Polish to various Italian regional foods to various uh, uh, French regional uh, cuisines, just like we do with French wines. Uh, with grape varietals, with terroir, with territory. And I think we are very far from there. And in this book, one of my attempt is to, and uh, one of my larger argument is to pay the kind of attention uh, to non-dominant cuisines as we have done to the dominant cuisines of the Western world.
0: So do you think that becoming a bit more specific without being into proselytism, as you were saying, that it's not the, the job of the restaurateur to educate. At the same time, the the ethnic restaurants, and something that I argue in my thesis is that they are considered as informal cultural ambassadors. It's usually the first thing that you learn about a foreign country, especially in a cities like Geneva, that has more than 190 nationalities. The the state had also launched an endeavour called Cultural Ambassadors and going around giving certificates to restaurants. So do you think that going into regionalism and more specific and going the the way the terroir, because the terroir is a a label here across France and Switzerland, uh, um, a distinction of quality a distinction of authenticity and this and this a whole connotation whether there or not but people assume terroir means bio organic it means um yeah uh, from the earth so it's not modified would that help the indian restaurants and south asian restaurants to become not more upscale but th- less discriminated price-wise because there's this expectation that they have to be cheap.
1: Yes. And in fact, I forgot to answer your earlier question, which is why one of those restaurants fail. And I'll come back to it and remind me if I I, uh, divert away too far away. And the question you're asking now is in some ways, it's almost inevitable that a material transaction is also a cultural transaction, right? In this case, food. And it is about money, it's about business, it's about making a living, but it is also about a cultural transaction. And in, in in some ways, it is almost totally unavoidable not to become a cultural ambassador if you look different, if your food tastes different, if what you do smells different, for instance. That is the engagement with difference, and it is unavoidable. Uh, but that is also, in some ways, I would say, becomes a prison house. Almost, you see a brown body, you assume different. So I would say that is that is a tough place that immigrant restaurateurs, immigrant entrepreneurs, are engaging with. And you saw in a section of my book where people want to, for instance, Indian uh, uh, um, chefs who want who have long experience in cooking French. Uh, Uh, say, Nouvelle French cuisine, have a difficult time breaking into that world because people can see white bodies and say, okay, you can do French. But if you see brown bodies with Indian accent, the presumption is, well, you can only do Indian food uh, and you can Mm -hmm. do French food. So there's, uh, there's this relationship between body and expertise, both as the skills you have and the signals it gives off. And the contradiction between the two is in some ways, this kind of a kind of two sides of the same brown body twisting in terms of claiming its capacity to say something uh, in this cultural transaction between a minority culture and a majority and a dominant culture. Uh, So I think that's uh, uh, unavoidable, that's difficult, that's complicated, and that's very interesting, in fact, in urban culinary cultures uh, today everywhere in almost any, any global city. Did you want me to talk a bit about the failure of one of the restaurants and the success it's, of it'd it? It
0: would be great, yeah. Okay. It would be great.
1: So, um, uh, to the question, uh, Muhammad Rasool's restaurant, which was more downscale, cheaper, typical uh, Indian restaurant, uh, it succeeded, it, meaning that it, it's in business still, uh, 10 years uh, after uh, I did my study. Uh, while Chitrita uh, Mukherjee's restaurant, where she was trying to do a more regional, a kind of a more upscale version of Indian food, failed in New York City. And one of the reasons, I think, is because Americans uh, uh, are unwilling to pay the kind of price they want to pay, uh, say, for what used to be French, uh, uh, quite upscale, so almost 50 to 60 percent, Of French restaurants in New York City are quite upscale and Americans are willing to pay the price for it, which is about, say, $100 for for good food, uh, sustainable food, local seasonal food, cooked by expert labor with a couple of glasses of wine and tips, which is quite expensive. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not willing to do that with uh, Indian restaurant or Pakistani restaurant or Bangladeshi restaurant in Mm. most cases for most of the time. And this is what I call in some ways a hierarchy of taste. And that is related to a history of, uh, uh, I think, colonization uh, and a history of what we we, uh, previously talked about, Um, inability to understand the refined qualities the fine qualities of various South Asian regional uh, cuisines Uh, for instance the capacity to make distinctions between this dal uh, uh, say masoor dal uh, and a moong dal they're two different kinds of dal in a sense where a Western audience uh, does not have the capacity in in a double sense neither the tongue nor the words uh, to make a distinction that they can say with two sauces from French haute cuisine repertoire or say wines right and this is of course the question of knowledge and power uh, and the relationship the capacity to make distinctions and the ability to make distinctions which is partly linked to what they've been exposed to before and partly linked to what we are expected to know. In a sense, mm-hmm. in, as a modern urban subject, I'm now expected to know make distinctions between different kinds of wine, though I grew up without ever drinking a glass of wine. I, I had my mm-hmm. first glass of wine after I came to the U.S. But as an urban subject now, I'm really expected to, kind of not to embarrass myself, to understand a little bit of the distinctions between Uh, grape varietal type of wine where it is grown etc but as a modern urban uh, global subject I'm not yet expected to make those finer distinctions between regional Indian cuisines and maybe you have some of that emerging as regional chinese cuisines and i personally think that's going to be the big difference over the next 20 years i think is that because of the rise of china as a major economic power as a source of cultural power it will force the rest of us to learn to make more intelligent distinctions about chinese cuisine that we have learned about mostly european cuisines and and a, and a bit of South American cuisines too, by the way, where Mexican and Peruvian. You're beginning to see capacity to make distinctions, even if you're not Mexican or Peruvian today, as a global subject. That hasn't happened with South Asia yet, uh, and yet. Uh, you know, yeah. yet. And 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 my sense is it's going to take much longer than say uh, uh, the capacity to make distinctions about Chinese regional foods. And and, and there is a historical precedent for it. For instance, uh, often Americans could not make distinctions between various Italian regional foods. You know, there was just one yeah. flat notion of uh, spaghetti or pizza. And now Americans make very subtle distinctions, are able to make quite mm-hmm. subtle distinctions, and pay a different kind of a price. So I would say uh, the Chitrita Mukherjee's restaurant failed because she was almost. Um, uh, her work uh, in, in, uh, was almost outside the capacity of people, uh, Westerners, to either make the distinction as to what that food was to understand it or, in fact, have words for it and, and the willingness to pay the price for it. And that is what I call a global hierarchy of taste. The world in that sense is we are, we are all becoming quite omnivorous. We're eating a lots of different kinds of food, but the world is not becoming flat. It's not all equal, that you can eat any food with any distinctions, with any refinement at any price. That's just not true yet.
0: Amazing. That's Thank you very much for this in-depth analysis. Um, I think I, I won't take much more of your time. I have one more follow-up question. Okay, yeah. Uh, have you come across um, the, the same kind of, um, the same kind of, uh, theory not theory but the, the same develops some in terms of South Asian literature in English yes there's a there's a few books and a few academic research that focus on how food has become a, a central character in each of these books and has become literally um a canon there's the the curry house cat not the mm-hmm. curry house canon but the curry book canon <laughs> yes um and I was wondering if you have come across this and come across uh, Nabin Rathnam's book. Yes. Uh, and how he talks about he in his in his essay, he kind of tries to give that knowledge somehow uh-huh. uh, that you're talking about that we need that some that uh, global knowledge about the food we're consuming. So do you think that these books have contributed? to the curry house uh, canon, or are they forwarding the cause, or are we just Mm. locked into this imagined food and imagined territory, and it's going to take a very long time to get out of it, as you're saying?
1: Tough question. I would say both those things. We are in a prison house of hierarchy of taste, and in fact, hierarchy of opportunity. Uh, where it is in, in our world today, uh, so I'll give you an example. Mm. We are learning, for instance, over the last 20 years, have been learning to drink sake, the way, a bit like the way we have been, uh, we know how to drink wine, for instance, French wines or Italian wines. And think about that. I mean, French wines were the earliest to kind of have this very aggressive and successful, uh, uh project uh, of uh, turning us all into very sophisticated uh, um, tasters of it Uh, then it happened with italian wine and now it's happening with uh, sake for instance but a lot of for instance in south asia various peasant communities uh, uh, of South Asia and various river valleys, they have also something. A lot of the rice wines, uh, especially in the rice-growing river valleys, is exactly what is sake in Japan. But we, most of us, in fact, even urban-dwelling Indians, okay, do not look at uh, at the uh, uh, rice wines produced by India's poor with any kind of sophistication, ability to make distinction, or even acknowledge it as it is part of good taste okay and uh mm-hmm. and of course there's no visibility of it there's assumption that uh, indians don't drink any of these uh, rice wines uh, and so that is clearly linked i would say to kind of a political economy and a cultural economy of capital and cultural capital and so there's a hierarchy and uh, uh but like the example you you raise uh in fact english uh literature Written by Indians today, I would say today you cannot become a specialist in English literature without reading Indians writing in English, from Salman Rushdie, Indians mm-hmm. from South Asia, mm-hmm. Indians uh, diasporic Indians, uh, V.S. Naipaul, uh, uh, or any of these writers, right? Uh, and, and in fact, that hasn't happened with food. So the the, the discussion in literature, especially. Uh, I think what is called in some ways minority literature, and its capacity. Like Salman Rushdie says, he uses a lot of Hindi words in his in his novels. And he, in a sense, his argument: when people complain about it; they don't understand. His response is: "Look, I had to figure out daffodils and, and Keats's and, and Wordsworth's poem, so you, and had never seen a daffodil, uh, and uh, so you guys figure out uh, uh, what some of these words are. You Put in some effort into it, you know. And so I think mm-hmm. English literature by South Asians have been very successful." Uh, uh, like say Sarah Suleri's beautiful book called Meatless Days, yeah. right? Um, and and Absolutely. and so uh, it, it's almost uh, that's what makes me optimistic that you can in fact break into the canon of Western literature uh, uh, and and do it uh, as brown subjects, as female subjects, as subjects who were not in some ways that visible um, twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Uh, my, I'm, I'm uh, m- uh, much more pessimistic in, in the domain of food and material culture. Uh, uh,
0: Even with the rise of uh, all these Netflix shows about authenticity and, and, and the street vendors' history, there's so many of them out. And all this Instagram craze street about... Street food too. Yeah, yeah. Indian food. So I, yeah. I would
1: say, okay, let me change my mind as I'm talking to you. I'm less <laughs> pessimistic uh, but it feel, it still okay. feels almost a generation behind the discussion on uh, literature. I think that is partly because of the other hierarchy of taste we have in our mind, that if you write it yep. and if you play it, this is somehow high culture. But if it is just food, it is very difficult to cross the triviality barrier of it you know, it's still there. At one side, it almost becomes a liability because I'm a chair of a Department of Nutrition and Food Studies. So the first thing I have to get past is people saying, ah, you can't be doing any serious work because you're thinking about food. I would understand if you're doing serious work, if you're thinking about music, okay? If you're thinking about architecture, great. But food, it's kind of trivial, okay? And that triviality of food is basically, I think, linked to the in some ways, the inferiority of the subject. It is mostly women and mostly poor people who do most of the cooking in most parts of the world. That's still not taken seriously in the higher reaches of even the cultural academy of men theorizing, okay? But I'm also very enthusiastic and I see it happening is the breakdown of this hierarchy since I would say since we have had since Kant, Immanuel Kant. Uh, who argument was that well, visual culture and or and audible culture you can develop sophistication, you can have reason and you can engage with it and a touch and palatal taste and smell uh, can never be a source of this reasoned discussion. I think that consensus in Western culture is disintegrating, and that is providing an opening to all kinds of interesting minoritarian material culture associated with food. And I see the promise there.
0: Amazing. I think this is the best way to conclude this conversation, Professor. Thank you very much for your time. It's uh, It was very, very informative.